For those who are visiting with us today, we've been going through a series on the book of Jonah. And this morning we look at chapter 3, keeping in mind that this is not so much a story about Jonah or, or the big fish that we all know so well, but it's a story of God's mercy and His desire to pursue His people. So this morning we're going to read from Jonah 2, the last verse where we left off last week, verse 10, and then continue on in, uh, to Jonah chapter 3. So Jonah 2, verse 10, to chapter 3, verse 10. And as you're looking for that in your Bibles, let's come to God in prayer. God, we give you thanks for opportunities to be together as your people. We had the celebration of baptism, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, and now we celebrate your word coming in to us, being read and, and proclaimed. So Lord, we thank you for these gifts. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who works in us and among us and among the church, your body. So bless the reading of the word and bless each of us as we participate in the reading and the listening. May we be active in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Jonah 2, verse 10 to 3 to 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It came the first time in chapter 1, verse 1. Now it's coming again. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. In chapter 1, verse 3, he disobeyed the word of the Lord. Now in 3, verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by doing a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his thorn, a throne, rather, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they, had, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Before we dive into this story of Jonah, I'm going to share with you another story. It's a story that maybe some of you are familiar with. It's from the New Testament book of Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32. And Jesus is telling this parable to the people who are listening to him, surrounded him. And it's a parable to a man who had two sons. And the man went to the first son and he said, Son, Go and work today in the vineyard. And the son answered, I will not. But later, that son changed his mind and he went. And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And the second son said, I will, sir. But he didn't go. And so Jesus turned to the people and he asked them, Which of the two sons did what the father wanted? The first who said no, and then went. The people answered. 
Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. A tough story that Jesus is telling the Pharisees and others who are around him. So here we are now, back to Jonah, the Old Testament. And Jonah is likely sitting in this pile of fish puke on the beach. And we're not given all the details of what's going on. But we know it's messy. It's gross. And yet, we also know that God is meeting him there. He is there with him. Because as verse 1 states, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And now God is saying, again, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. But earlier in the story, as we said, Jonah said no, and he ran from the Lord. Now maybe having spent some time traveling to Joppa, sailing to Tarshish, and who knows where he traveled in the belly of the fish, Jonah's finally obeyed, obeying the Lord. He said no. But like the story that Jesus said, he's like that one son who changed his mind, and now he went. So Jonah comes to this very large city. Now, its greatness is repeated several times in the book of Jonah, because I think the author wants to get across to us that this was a big city. It was an important city. Geographically, it was large. The population was big. Chapter 4, next week we'll hear how it talks about 120,000 people who didn't know from their left hand to the right hand. But the city had hundreds of thousands of people in. And it was an overwhelming task. It must have been an overwhelming task to preach the message of the Lord. And this cannot be orchestrated by one person unless God is involved. The proclamation was for them to come to their spiritual senses in 40 days. The city was evil. They did not know the Lord, the God of all creation. They had 40 days. Now, 40 is significant in Scripture. 40 is a time of complete testing, a time of preparation, a time of uh, cleansing. It's often symbolic, but other times it has been used literal in the Bible as well. It's used in scriptures with uh, the flood, 40 days and nights. And uh, the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, went to the land of Canaan, and the spies checked it out. It took 40 days for them to check it out. They came back, and then Israel started complaining. So God said, okay, for every one day that it took the spies, one year for you guys in the wilderness. 40 years in the wilderness. Um, Elijah traveled 40 days to Mount Horeb, preparing himself to meet the Lord in a whisper. Jesus was 40 days in the desert after his baptism, and then he ascended 40 days after his resurrection. 40 is significant. It's significant for preparation, for testing, which is part of the journey for any believer and for the Ninevites. So the only words that uh, are recorded as spoken in chapter 3 by Jonah was 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now we're not sure of the complete message that Jonah proclaimed. I mean, we've got to ask ourselves, did he talk about God? Did he talk about their sins? The point is that God was involved. And the people needed to make a turn to the Lord, the God of all creation. Now, when I was reading this story, you've got to think for a moment. What would we, as believers, do if this were to happen today? We'd probably not listen 
if somebody were to do that today. If someone came from another country, traveled through a city the size of London or maybe Hamilton or, or even the street corner, wherever we live, 40 more days and this town will be destroyed. person might get my attention a little bit, but wouldn't get much more. And I'd keep going with my regular routine. But thankfully, God and His Holy Spirit are involved. Because human nature is likely not to listen. But Jonah's message gets out only by the workings of God. And following verse 4, the chapter no longer deals with Jonah. God was working through Jonah to proclaim the message. And God is working in this city. He's working in the hearts of this people to turn to the Lord. To repent their hearts to the Lord. As we read, often a time of repentance in ancient times has to do with ashes and sackcloth and sometimes fasting, in this case fasting. And these were done because the sackcloth, for example, would often would be rough and would rub against their skin, reminding them of their wrongdoings. Or if they're fasting, they'd be hungry and they'd be reminded of, of why they were doing this. And in this case, the animals were even wearing sackcloth. They were serious about repentance and not being destroyed. Repentance from a biblical perspective is an inward change. It's a turnaround of the heart. A turnaround from not having God as a priority to a change that puts God as a priority in one's life. Repentance is from the heart. A change in behavior, outward is not necessarily part of repentance, but the fruits of repentance would often mean a change in behavior outward. Maybe the fruit would be visible immediately, but maybe not. In the case of the Ninevites, they turned their hearts to God, the inward change, and in doing so, the fruits of repentance were that they changed from their evil ways, the outward change. But you know, they needed to know what they were doing was not according to God's will. The Holy Spirit needs to convict each of us of the wrong that we are doing. If we don't know our wrong, then you know what? It's not a big deal that Jesus made it right. You see, the gospel message has two parts. The first part is, it's, there is that bad news of sin. But the second part There's that good news of salvation. So confessing our sins brings us to realize our sins, and then, only then, will we understand the amazing gift of our awesome Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to use Noreen here for a moment, because it could or could not be a true story. I'm just going to use her as an illustration. Noreen, I'm going to be sharing with you something right now, and I have some good news for you. Yesterday, I paid a $10,000 speeding ticket on your behalf. You said, thank you. So you're saying, thank you. That means, did it happen? (laughs) Okay, well, there's two responses. You'd probably respond, maybe, I hope, you didn't respond too much with some hesitation and skepticism in your voice, so I am a little worried. But you... A normal response would have been like, what are you talking about? That's not good news. It doesn't make sense. I don't have a $10,000 speeding ticket. 
In fact, you might look at me like an idiot. Well, either way, he's still my but <laughs> Because I just wasted 10,000 bucks. Correct? Oh, prepaying all your other speeding tickets. I bet I would be. Your reaction, though, would be quite understandable. If you didn't know that you'd broken the law in the first place, the good news of someone like me paying a fine for you would not be good news. It'd be just ridiculous. And perhaps it would be offensive even to some, because I'm insinuating in this case that you have indeed broken the law when you think you haven't. But now let me put it this way, Noreen. Yesterday, a police officer clocked you traveling 60 kilometers per hour over the speed limit. You're traveling through a temporarily 25-kilometer zone designated for a seniors conference, and you sailed through at 85. And there were several clear warning signs indicating that the maximum speed was 25 kilometers per hour, not to mention several seniors with their walkers waiting to cross the road. But you completely ignored all of this. And you just barreled through with your car down the road. And what you did was extremely dangerous. And the penalty, because you're going well over 60 kilometers over, is a $10,000 fine or imprisonment. Now, you were going a little bit too fast for the cop to catch you. (laughs) But, so you were not aware. But what, I happened to be at the seniors conference with my mom. It wasn't for me. And I offered to pay the $10,000 fine for you. And now I'm making you aware of this crime. Originally, me saying that I paid your $10,000 fine did nothing for you. You said thanks, but that that was gracious. But you're probably thinking other things. But telling you precisely now what you've done wrong actually makes that good news make sense. The good news is not ridiculous. But I would imagine it'd be a relief. Once you understand that you've broken the law, then the good news that your penalty has been paid will become good news. Thanks for playing along, Noreen. She knew this was going to happen. When you recognize, when we recognize our sins through the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we recognize all that we've done wrong, we will understand the power of the good news and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I think part of the gospel message of repentance is to know that we are sinners. So a call to repentance is a call to faith. Repentance is a change of direction, a change of our heart inwardly, away from one thing and into a direction towards God and towards His will. And to do this, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. On our own, we're going to keep on going with whatever it is that we're doing, probably unaware that we're doing things wrong. Jonah couldn't possibly be able to tell the hundreds of thousands of people all about their sins, but the Holy Spirit could. So what's the gospel message? The gospel message is acknowledgement that I am a sinner. That means I disobey God and do not do all that I should do. And there is nothing that I can do about it. In fact, on my own, I'd probably get worse. So I am in need of saving. And God is the only one that can save. We need to repent. We need to turn to Him. Turn away from whatever our faces turn towards. 
Maybe it's entertainment or sports, Super Bowl Sunday, or employment or education or money. And these are all good gifts. Don't get me wrong. They're all good gifts from God, but they can be used to distract us from him. Or maybe you're in a destructible relationship and our attention is often on these other things and our God calls us to repent, to do a 180, to do a turnaround towards Him. Salvation is a free gift from God through Jesus. But our response is also important and necessary. And we're called to respond in faith. We're called to respond in obedience. Jonah originally said no, but he did repent. God has mercy and compassion on him. He has mercy and compassion on us over and over again. We can say that we will obey God, but we need to be obedient. That story that I shared from the New Testament, the second son in the story that Jesus told about, said, sure, I will do it. Easy word sometimes to say, sure, I'll do it. But he didn't. He didn't change his disobedience. And the first son in Jesus' story, and Jonas said no, but then obeyed God. And God has mercy. But our obedience must be evident as well. Repentance, inward. And then the fruits of repentance, outward. A change in heart. And then the fruits of the repentance will show through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, the story of Jonah is not a lesson about how we can say no to God initially and then eventually we'll say yes to God when it works out for us. I mean, God has mercy. He has compassion. He extends his grace. But there are still consequences to our negative and disobedient response. And I think too often we feel that we have a choice when it comes to obeying God. Like, well, I won't financially maybe give to the church right now because, well, I'm a student or things are too tight right now because I just bought a car or a house or I got to pay for that trip or I chose not to make or choose not to make public profession of my faith. I'll just do it later. I got time. No, God, not right now. Or I won't use my spiritual gifts until I have more time or until the church is in line with my way of thinking. Not now, God, later. We too often think it's okay to say no and yes later. Jonah and Nineveh are not stories about permission to say no. It's a story of God's mercy. And if we say, if we have said no, which oftentimes we have, calling us to say yes. Now we read in verse 10 that God relented. Relented is similar to giving in, surrendering? Did God do this? Did God change his mind? No. God knows all. The people had to make a decision. They had to recognize their sinful ways and turn to God for forgiveness. And from a human perspective, it appears that God changed his mind, and perhaps that's how we can possibly understand it. But this was simply God's response to humanity's change of heart. That God is a God of mercy and compassion. And His mercy overflows to us. We are all capable of terrible sins. All our sins have put Jesus Christ on the cross. But when you come to the font of baptism, 
when you come to the table of the Lord, you are also coming in repentance. Baptism and Lord's Supper, they don't save you. Jesus saves, but the sacraments remind us, yes, that we are sinners. And this is done through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. They remind me that I'm sinful. And I don't need to look at your sins. I don't need to look at Jonah's sins or the sins of the Ninevites. I need to look at my sins. I need to turn away from my sins and turn to God over and over again. And I need to be aware of my sins. And then the promise of forgiveness is so amazing. The promise that God is my God and I'm his child is so meaningful. Now I have to admit that I don't fully understand the forgiveness of all our sins and fully understand repentance. But that's where our faith comes in, right? Because I know darn well that when I confess and repent and understand that God has even paid more than a $10,000 fine for me, I'm likely still going to sin again. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, I will continue to be convicted of what I've done and will continue to give God thanks for the forgiveness of all my sins. Martin Luther, in his first statement that he nailed to the church door in Germany a little over 500 years ago, stated that our whole life is a life of repentance. Our whole life is a life that's continuing to turn our hearts towards the Lord. You see, repentance is not a single event. It's not a one-time event. It's a journey. It is a journey of turning our hearts to God. Turning to God. Knowing that there are times that we will unintentionally and intentionally say no. Knowing that we are sinners but also that we need him and that he has granted us salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. He has come to us and calling us to be his children, his son, his daughter. And we have the opportunity to say yes. To God be the glory. And together we say, Amen. Let's pray. God, we come before you recognizing that we fall short in all areas of our lives. And we again repent, and we turn our eyes and our hearts to you. And you are gracious, and you extend your mercy to us. You forgive us, and you continue to love us. So we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit at work in us, to convict us of our sins, and to lead us into a life of obedience to you. Help us to strive to profess your name. Help us to strive to share your message, your message of love and grace through your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he did for us on the cross. Colton heard those words this morning. We, the family heard those words. We all heard those words. And we're reminded again through baptism and through the sacraments, we thank you for these gifts. Help us to strive to love you and to love others around us, even those that are so hard to love. Hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.